Big Rex. The mighty Tyrannosaurus arose late in dinosaur history. Dinosaurs ruled the earth for 120 million years, but there were Tyrannosaurus for only the last 15 million years of that period. The land cruisers had stopped at the rise of the hill. They overlooked a forested area sloping down to the edge of the lagoon. The sun was falling to the west, sinking into a misty horizon. The whole landscape of Jurassic Park was bathed in soft light, with lengthening shadows. The surface of the lagoon rippled in pink crescents. Farther south they saw a graceful necks of the Camarasaurus, standing at the water's edge, their bodies mirrored in the moving surface. It was quiet, except for a soft drone of cicadas. As they stared out at the landscape, it was possible to believe that they had really been transported millions of years back in time to a vanished world. It works, doesn't it? they heard Ed Regis say over the intercom. I like to come here sometimes in the evening and just sit. Grant was unimpressed. Where is T-Rex? Good question. You often see the little one down in the lagoon. The lagoon's stuck, so we have fish in there. The little one has learned to catch the fish. Interesting how, how he does it. He doesn't use his hands, but he ducks his whole head under the water like a bird. The little one? The little Rex is a is a juvenile, just two years old and about a third grown now. Stands eight feet high, weighs a ton and a half. The other one's a full-grown Tyrannosaurus, but I, I don't see him at the moment. Maybe he's down hunting the Camarasaurus, Grant said. Regis laughed, his voice tinny over the radio. <laughs> he, he would if he could, believe me. Sometimes he stands by the lagoon and stares at those animals and wiggles those little forearms of his with frustration. But the T-Rex territory is uh, completely enclosed with trenches and fences. They're uh, disguised from view. But believe me, he can't go anywhere. Then where is he? Hiding, Regis said. He's a little shy. Ah, uh, shy, Malcolm said. Tyrannosaurus Rex is shy? Well, he conceals himself and as a general rule. You uh, almost never see him out in the open, especially in daylight. Ah, uh, why is that? We think it's because he has sensitive skin and sunburns easily. <laughs> Malcolm began to laugh. Grant sighed. You're destroying a lot of illusions. I don't think you'll be disappointed, Regis said. Just wait. They heard a soft bleating sound. In the center of a field, a small cage rose up into view, lifted on hydraulics from underground. The cage bars slid down, and the goat remained tethered in the centre of the field, bleating plaintively. Any minute now, Regis said again. They stared out of the window. Look at them, Hammond said, watching the control room under. Leaning out of the window so eager, they can't wait to see it. They have come for the danger. Oh, that's what I'm afraid of, Muldoon said. He twirled the keys on his finger and watched the land cruisers tensively. This was the first time that visitors had toured Jurassic Park, and Muldoon shared Arnold's apprehension. Robert Muldoon was a big man, fifty years old, with a still grey moustache and deep blue eyes. Raised in Kenya, he had spent most of his life as a guide for African big-game hunters, as had his father before him. But since 1980, he had worked principally for conservation groups and zoo designers as a wildlife consultant. 
he had become well known. An article in the London Sunday Times had said, What Robert Trent Jones is to golf courses, Robert Muldoon is to zoos, a designer of unsurpassed knowledge and skill. In 1986, he had done some work for a San Francisco company that was building a private wildlife park on an island in North America. Muldoon had laid out the boundaries for different animals, defining space and habitat requirements for lions, elephants, zebras and hippos, identify which animals could be kept together and which had to be separated. At the time, it had been a fairly routine job. He had been more interested in an Indian park called Tiger World in southern Kashmir, then a year ago, he was offered a job as a game warden of Jurassic Park. It coincided with a desire to leave Africa. The salary was excellent. Muldoon had taken it on for a year. He was astonished to discover the park was really a collection of genetically engineered prehistoric animals. It was, of course, interesting work, but during the years in Africa, Muldoon had developed an unblinking view of animals. An unromantic view that frequently set him at odds with the Jurassic Park management in California. Particularly the little martinette standing beside him in the control room. In Muldoon's opinion, cloning dinosaurs in a laboratory was one thing. Maintaining them in the wild was quite another. It was Muldoon's view that some dinosaurs were too dangerous to be kept in a park setting. In part, the danger existed because they still knew so little about the animals. For example... Nobody even suspected that Dilophosaurus was poisonous until they were observing hunting indigenous rats on the island, biting the rodents and then stepping back to wait for them to die. And even then, nobody suspected Dilophosaurus could spit until one of the handlers was almost blinded by spitting venom. After that, Hammond had agreed to study Dilophosaur venom, which was found to contain several different toxic enzymes. It was also discovered that the Lophosaurus could spit a distance of 50 feet. Since this raised the possibility that a guest in a car might be blinded, management decided to remove the poison sacks. The vets had tried twice on two different animals without success. No one knew where the poison was being secreted, and no one would ever know until an autopsy was performed on the Lophosaur, and management would not allow one to be killed. Muldoon worried even more about the Velociraptors. They were instinctive hunters, and they never passed up on prey. They killed even when they weren't hungry. They killed for the pleasure of killing. They were swift, strong runners and astonishing jumpers. They had lethal claws and all four limbs. One swipe of a forearm would disembowel a man, spilling his guts out. And they had powerful tearing jaws that ripped flesh instead of biting it. They were far more intelligent than other dinosaurs, and they seemed to be natural cage breakers. Every zoo expert knew that certain animals were especially likely to get free from their cages. Some, like monkeys and elephants, could undo cage doors. Others, like wild pigs, were unusually intelligent and could lift gate fasteners with their snouts. But who would suspect that the giant armadillo was a notorious cage breaker, or the moose? Yet a moose was almost as skilful with its snout as an elephant with its trunk. Moose were always getting free. They had a talent for it. And so did velociraptors. Raptors were at least as intelligent as chimpanzees. And like chimpanzees, they had agile hands that enabled them to open doors and manipulate objects. They could escape with ease. And when, as Muldoon had feared, 
One of them finally escaped. It killed two construction workers and maimed a third before being recaptured. After that episode, the visitor lodge had been reworked with heavily barred gates, a higher perimeter fence and tempered glass windows. And the raptor holding pen was rebuilt with electronic sensors to warn of another impending escape. Muldoon wanted guns as well. And he wanted shoulder-mounted tow missile launchers. Hunters knew how difficult it was to bring down a four-ton African elephant, and some of these dinosaurs weighed ten times as much. Management was horrified, insisted there'd be no guns anywhere on the island. When Muldoon threatened to quit, and to take his story to the press, a compromise was reached. In the end, two specially built laser-guided missile launchers were kept in a locked room in the basement. Only Muldoon had the keys to that room. Those were the keys that Muldoon was twirling now. I'm going downstairs, he said. Arnold, watching the control screens, nodded. The two Land Cruisers sat at the top of the hill, waiting for the T-Rex to appear. Hey, Dennis Nedry called from the far console. As long as you're up, you get me a coke, okay? Grant waited in the car, watching quietly. The bleating of the goat became louder, more insistent. The goat tugged frantically at its tether, racing back and forth. Over the radio, Grant heard Lex saying, alarm, What's going to happen to the goat? Is she going to eat the goat? I think so, someone said to her, and then Ellie turned the radio down. Then they smelled the odour, a garbage stench of putrefaction and decay that drifted up the hillside towards them. Grant whispered, He's here. Ah, uh, she... Malcolm said. The goat was tethered in the centre of the field, thirty yards from the nearest trees. A dinosaur must be somewhere among the trees. But for a moment, Grant could see nothing at all. Then, he realised, he was looking too low. The animal's head stood twenty feet above the ground, half concealed among the upper branches of the palm trees. Malcolm whispered, Oh my God, she's as large as a bloody building. Grant stared at the enormous square head, five feet long mottled reddish-brown with huge jaws and fangs. The Tyrannosaurus jaws worked once, opening and closing, but the huge animal did not emerge from hiding. Malcolm whispered, uh, How long do we have to wait? Maybe three to four minutes? Maybe. The Tyrannosaurus sprang silently forward, fully revealing her enormous body. In four pounding steps, she had covered the distance to the goat, bent down and bit through the neck. The bleeding stopped. There was silence. Poised over her kill, the Tyrannosaurus became suddenly hesitant. Her massive head turned on the muscular neck, looking at all directions. She stared fixedly at the land cruiser, high above on the hill. Malcolm whispered, Can she see us? Oh, yes, Regis said on the intercom. Let's see uh, if she's going to eat it in front of us, or if she's going to drag the prey away. The Tyrannosaurus bent down and sniffed the carcass of the goat. A bird chirped. Her head snapped up, alert, watchful. She looked back and forth, scanning in small jerking shifts. Like a bird, Eddie said. Still, the Tyrannosaur hesitated. Uh, why, why is she afraid of? Malcolm whispered. Probably another Tyrannosaur, Grant whispered. Big carnivores like lions and tigers often became cautious after a kill, behaving as if suddenly exposed. 
19th century zoologists imagined the animals felt guilty for what they had done, but contemporary scientists documented the effort behind a kill, hours of patient stalking before the final lunge, as well as the frequency of failure. The idea of nature red in tooth and claw was wrong. Most often the prey got away. When a carnivore finally brought down an animal, it was watchful for another predator, who might attack it and steal its prize. Thus this tyrannosaur was probably fearful of another tyrannosaur. The huge animal bent over the goat again. One great hind limb held the carcass in place as the jaws began to tear the flesh. She's uh, going to stay, Regis whispered. Excellent. The tyrannosaur lifted her head again, ragged chunks of bleeding flesh in her jaws. She stared at the land cruiser. She began to chew. They heard the sickening crunch of bones. Ew, Lex said over the intercom. That's disgusting. And then, as if caution had finally gotten the better of her, the Tyrannosaurus lifted the remains of the goat in her jaws and carried it silently back among the trees. Ladies and gentlemen, Tyrannosaurus Rex, the tape said. The land cruisers started up and moved silently off through the foliage. Malcolm sat back in his seat. Fantastic, he said. Gennaro wiped his forehead. He looked pale. Control. Henry Wu came into the control room to find everyone sitting in the dark listening to the voices on the radio. Jesus, if an animal like that gets out, Gennaro was saying. His voice was tinny on the speaker. There'd be no stopping it. No stopping it, no. Huge, with no natural enemies. My God, think of it. In the control room, Hammond said, Damn those people, they're so negative, Wu said. They're still going on about the animals escaping, I don't understand. They must have seen by now that we have everything under control. We've engineered the animals and engineered the resort, he shrugged. It was Wu's deepest perception that the park was fundamentally sound, as he had believed that his paleo-DNA was fundamentally sound. Whatever problems might arise in the DNA were essentially point problems in the code, causing a specific problem in a phenotype, an enzyme that didn't switch on or a protein that didn't fold. Whatever the difficulty, it was always solved with a relatively minor adjustment in the next version. Similarly, he knew that Jurassic Park's problems were not fundamental problems. They were not control problems. Nothing as basic or as serious as the possibility of an animal escaping. Wu found it offensive to think that anyone would believe him capable of contributing to a system where such a thing could happen. It's that Malcolm, Hammond said darkly. He's behind it all. He was against us from the start, you know. He's got his theory that complex systems can't be controlled and nature can't be imitated. I don't know what his problem is. Oh, we're just making a zoo here. World's full of them. And they all work fine. But he is going to prove his theory or die trying. I just hope he doesn't panic Gennaro into trying to shut the park down. Wu said, can he do that? No, but he can try. He can try and frighten the Japanese investors and get them to withdraw funds. Or he can make a stink with the San Jose government. He can make trouble. Arnold stubbed out his cigarette. Let's wait and see what happens, he said. We believe in the park. Let's see how it plans out. Muldoon got off the elevator, nodded to the ground floor guard, 
and went downstairs to the basement. He flicked on the lights. The basement was filled with two dozen land cruisers arranged in neat rows. These were the electric cars that would eventually form an endless loop touring the park, returning to the visitor centre. In the corner was a jeep with a red stripe, one of two gasoline-powered vehicles. Harding, the vet, had taken the other one that morning, which could go anywhere in the park, even among the animals. The jeeps were painted with a diagonal red stripe because of some reason it discouraged the triceratops from charging the car. Muldoon moved past the jeep toward the back. The steel door to the armaments room was unmarked. He unlocked it with his key and swung the heavy door wide. Gun racks lined the interior. He pulled out a Randler shoulder launcher and a case of canisters. He tucked two grey rockets under his other arm. After locking the door behind him, he put a gun into his back seat of his jeep. As he left the garage, he heard the distant rumble of thunder. Looks like rain, Ed Regis said, glancing up at the sky. The land cruisers had stopped again near the sauropod swamp. A large herd of Apatosaurus was grazing at the edge of the lagoon, eating the leaves of the upper branches of the palm trees. In the same area were several duck-billed hadrosaurs, which in comparison looked much smaller. Of course, Tim knew the hadrosaurs weren't really small. It was only that the Apatosauruses were so much larger. Their tiny heads reached fifty feet into the air, extending out their long necks. The big animals you see are commonly called Brontosaurus, the recording said. But they were actually Apatosaurus. They weigh more than thirty tons. That means a single animal is as big as a whole herd of modern elephants. And you may notice that their preferred area alongside the lagoon is not swampy. Despite what the books say, Brontosauruses avoid swamps. They prefer dry land. Brontosaurus is the biggest dinosaur, Alex, Edridge said. Tim didn't bother to contradict him. Actually, Brachiosaurus was three times as large, and some people thought Ultrasaurus and Seismosaurus were even larger than Brachiosaurus. Seismosaurus might have weighed a hundred tons. Alongside the Apatosaurus, the smaller Hadrosaurus stood on their hind legs to get the foliage. They moved gracefully for such large creatures. Several infant hadrosaurs scampered around the adults, eating their leaves that dropped from the mouths of the larger animals. The dinosaurs of Jurassic Park don't breed, the recording said. The young animals you see here were introduced a few months ago already hatched, but the adults nurture them anyway. There was a rolling growl of thunder. The sky was darker, lower, menacing. Yeah, looks like rain, all right, Edridge said. The car started forward and Tim looked back at the hadrosaurs. Suddenly, off to one side, he saw a pale yellow animal moving quickly. There were brownish stripes on its back. He recognised it instantly. Hey! he shouted. Stop the car! What is it? Ed Regis said. Quick! Stop the car! We move on now to see the last of the great prehistoric animals, the Stegosaurus, the voice recorded said. Hey, what's the matter, Tim? I saw one! I saw one in the field out there. Saw what? A raptor in the field. The Stegosaurus are a mid-Jurassic animal, evolving about 170 million years ago, the recording said. Several of these remarkable herbivores live here at Jurassic Park. Oh, I don't think so, Tim, Edridge said. Not a raptor. I did stop the car. There was a babble on the intercom as the news was relayed to Grant and Malcolm. Tim says he saw a raptor.
Where? Back in the field. Well, let's go back and have a look. We can't go back, Edward just said. We can only go forward. The cars are programmed. We can't go back, Grant said. No, Ridge said. Sorry, you see, it's, it's kind of a ride. Ah, uh, uh, Timmy, this is Professor Malcolm, said a voice cutting in on the intercom. I, uh, I've just, I have just one question for you about this raptor. Uh, how old would you say it was? Older than the baby we saw today, Tim said, and younger than the big adults in the pen. The adults are about six foot tall. This one's about half that size. Oh, that's fine, Malcolm said. I only saw, saw it for a second, Tim said. I'm sure it wasn't a raptor, Edward just said. It couldn't possibly be a raptor. It must have been one of the Arthies. They're always jumping their fences. We, we have a hell of a time with them. I know, I saw a raptor, Tim said. I'm hungry, Lex said. She was starting to whine. In the control room, Arnold turned to Woo. Why do you think the kid saw? I think it must have been an Arthie. Arnold nodded. We have trouble tracking Arthies because they spend so much time in the trees. The Arthies were an exception to the usual minute-to-minute -minute control they maintained over the animals. The computers were constantly losing and picking up the Arthies as they went in the trees and they came out again. What burns me, Hammond said, is that we have made this wonderful park, this fantastic park, and our first visitors are going through it like accountants, just looking for problems. They aren't experiencing the wonder of it all. Well, that's their problem, Arnold said. We can't make them experience wonder. The intercom clicked, and Arnold had a voice drool. Ah, uh, John, this is the AMB over the dock. We haven't finished the floating, but I'm um, looking at the storm pattern south of us. I'd rather not be tied up here if this job gets any worse. Arnold turned to the monitor showing the cargo vessel which was moored at the dock on the east side of the island. He pressed the radio button. How much left is there to do, Jim? Uh, just the three final equipment containers. I, I haven't checked the manifest, but I assume you can't wait another two weeks for it. We're, uh, we're not well berthed here, you know, and we're uh, 100 miles offshore. Are you requesting permission to leave? Yes, John. I want that equipment, Hammond said. That's the equipment for the labs. We need it. Yes, Arnold said, but you didn't want to put money in the storm barrier to protect the pier so we don't have a good harbor. If the storm gets worse, the ship will be pounded against the docks. I've seen ships lost that way. Then you got a, all the other expenses, replacement of the vessel plus salvage to the clear the dock, and you can't even use your dock until you do. Hammond gave a dismissing wave. Get them out of there. Permission to leave, Amby, Arnold said on the radio. See you in two weeks. The voice said. On the video monitor, they saw the crew and the docks casting off the lines. Arnold turned back to the main console bank. He saw the land cruisers moving through fields of steam. Where are they now? Hammond said. Well, it looks like the south fields, Arnold said. The southern end of the island had more volcanic activity than the north. That means they should be almost to the stegos. I'm sure they'll stop and see what Harding is doing. 